Um, We are 12 weeks into a journey through every chapter of the book of Luke, one of the four biographies of Jesus that's in the New Testament. And this morning we arrive at Luke chapter 13. I'm going to encourage you to open your Bible or pull one out of the pew rack um, and you can look up this um, passage. But the words I'm about to read are likely a bit different from what's in front of you. That's because this passage, Luke 13, 20 to 30, gives us a perfect opportunity to do something we wanted to do for a few weeks honor Presbyterian pastor, author, and Snohomish County native Eugene Peterson. Who knew? I didn't. He passed away just a few weeks ago. Eugene Peterson wrote over 30 books, but by far his best known is his earthy, vibrant, and often bracing paraphrase of the Bible known as The Message. Peterson set out not to translate the Greek word for word, but to try and convey the sheer surprise of Scripture, sometimes lost in our more formal translations. Our passage combines um, two passages often treated separately, but since the first is about yeast and bread, and the second about a feast, They both seem fitting the Sunday after Thanksgiving. So listen for God's word to you from Luke chapter 13, verses 20 to 30. And I'm reading from the message. He tried again. How can I picture God's kingdom? It's like yeast that a woman works into enough dough for three loaves of bread and waits while the dough rises. He went on teaching from town to village, village to town, but keeping on a steady course towards Jerusalem. A bystander said, Master, will only a few be saved? He said, Whether few or many is is none of your business. Put your mind on your life with God. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires your total attention. A lot of you are going to assume that you'll sit down to God's salvation banquet just because you've been hanging around the neighborhood all your lives. Well, one day, you're going to be banging on the door, wanting to get in, but you'll find the door locked and the master saying, Sorry, you're not on my guest list. You'll protest but we've known you all our lives, only to be interrupted with his abrupt, your kind of knowing can hardly be called knowing. You don't know the first thing about me. That's when you'll find yourselves out in the cold, strangers to grace. You'll watch Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets march into God's kingdom. You'll watch outsiders stream in from east west, north, and south, and sit down at the table of God's kingdom. And all the time, you'll be outside looking in and wondering, what happened? This is the great reversal. The last in line put at the head of the line, and the so-called first 
ending up last. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jill. Okay, so among all of those various dishes that most of you feasted on on Thursday, I bet you have a favorite. I want to know what it is. I want you to shout it out right now. Your favorite Thanksgiving menu item is? Oh yeah, isn't Thanksgiving amazing? It is so hard to choose. There's so many different amazing things. And you know, because it is a ritual of thanksgiving, of giving thanks to the Lord of the harvest, um, each year I, I attempt to do this, that when every dish comes my way, I look at it and I just take a moment and marvel at the small miracle that that dish really represents. I marvel that God thought to provide this sort of food in the first place. I marvel at the string of miracles that happen on that amazing story from farm to table. All the things in between that happen. Because there are some amazing stories, some amazing miracles that take place that are represented right there on the Thanksgiving table. However, if a moment ago, you happen to have said a certain menu item, you might be more attuned to this miracle than others are. And the menu item that I'm thinking of is the one that I would have said, and that is stuffing. Although, if you had said the dinner rolls or maybe even the wine, this would be the case too. Because in your case, your favorite menu item involves the odd and enigmatic miracle of yeast. And why am I talking about yeast? Because Jesus did. Right there in the middle of the 13th chapter of Luke's gospel, Luke's account of Jesus' life, that Jill just read for us, Jesus essentially says, if you want to understand me and my kingdom, you've got to understand yeast. Or maybe, more accurately, you've got to realize that you really have no clue how yeast works. Well, it turns out that this particular idea of yeast, the Humble wonder that Jesus assumes, assumes that his listeners would have, the delighted sense of astonishment, the sense of marvel, it turns out that that is the ticket to a particular feast, an epic feast that he goes on to describe in the passage that immediately follows his words about yeast. And since, apparently, this is a banquet to which quite a few are going to miss out altogether, it probably makes sense for us to spend a little while and think about this miracle of yeast. Saccharomyces cerevisiae. That is the scientific name for household yeast. Turns out, though, it's actually one of 1,500 different species of this miraculous fungus. And yes, yeast is a fungus. It is a one-cell cousin of the mushroom. Yeast is rather tiny. You can see those uh, granules on the right, and you might think that each one of those little granules is the yeast. Nope, each one of those granules actually contains over one million cells of yeast. 
nor does that yeast cell live all that long. Its average lifespan is about 36 hours, but boy, in those few hours, these yeasts get a remarkable amount of stuff done. And the reason is that unlike most other fungi, in fact, unlike most other living organisms, yeast cells do not need oxygen to do what they do, to eat and to grow and to thrive and to multiply. Even in the absence of oxygen, yeast can feast away. And what do they feast on? Well, they feast on a number of naturally occurring sugars that we know as carbohydrates. And yeast converts these sugars into two delightful things, alcohol, ethyl alcohol, and carbon dioxide. And it's this chemical reaction that yields all sort of wonderful results. It is the yeast that piggyback on every grape that is the secret of fermenting wine. I see Gary right there, one of our winemakers. Um, yeast is also the catalyst that's used to turn grain into ethanol, which is in our gas pumps. But by far, yeast's most familiar use is the one that Jesus talks about here. Yeast is the enigmatic organism that makes bread, well, bread. It is the secret of bread's delightful fluffiness, of all of those air holes that are in that slice of bread. Or more to the point this last Thursday, it's the secret to that porousness that allows the stuffing to absorb the gravy. Isn't that one of God's amazing gifts, isn't it? Isn't it? Okay, so here's how it works. Once the yeast is worked into the raw dough, it's, uh, it doesn't have any access. It doesn't have anywhere for that CO2 that it produces to go. So it inflates millions of air pockets throughout that lump of dough. It is a process that archaeologists have attested at bakeries that they've found that are over 6,000 years old. So I read somewhere that that makes yeast one of humankind's earliest domesticated organisms. And it is to this mighty, miraculous little fungus that Jesus compares the kingdom of God. He does so in what might be one of his shortest parables. It's just two verses long. And in fact, it's the sheer brevity of this mini parable that I find most intriguing. How can I picture God's kingdom, Jesus says? It's like yeast that a woman works into enough dough for three loaves of bread and waits while the dough rises. That's it. Like this woman waiting for the yeast, we wait for Jesus to explain his parable, to clarify it, to connect the dots, but Jesus just leaves us hanging. The kingdom of God is like yeast. Um, okay, Jesus, uh, how is it like yeast? And as so often happens in his parables, Jesus' refusal to reduce it to some simple slogan forces us into active thought. It forces us to ponder, well, just what is it about this woman's experience with yeast that somehow unlocks the kingdom of God? Well, for the last few weeks, I've been pondering yeast, including over the Thanksgiving table when I appreciated the yeast that made that stuffing and that warm dinner roll. But the thought occurred to me, maybe, maybe what Jesus has in mind isn't what we know 
about yeast. It's what we don't know. It was not until the year 1857 that a scientist with a familiar name figured out that yeast is actually a living organism. His name was Louis Pasteur. Now, for my money, knowing that yeast is in fact a microscopic anaerobic fungus doesn't make the whole process any less marvelous. In fact, to me, it makes it more so. Even so, think about All of those generations of bakers, hundreds and thousands of generations of bakers that lived before Pasteur's discovery. Bakers that Luke, the gospel writer, knew, whose craft he observed daily with Luke's scientific mind of a trained physician. Bakers that the disciples knew, bakers that the crowd that's described in this passage knew, bakers that Luke's original readers knew, bakers that all of those generations of readers since have known. All of them, part of a culture, pardon the pun, you'll get it, all of them part of a culture with no understanding of microbiology. And now, think of just what a strange, bizarre, counterintuitive, even repugnant thing every one of those bakers did every day as a routine part of their work. Each day, they would leave a bit of dough out on the counter. And they would leave it there overnight until it got a bit runny and smelly. And basically, until it got rancid. And then... Oh, yeah, they would toss this soupy blob of smelly rotten dough into the next day's flour, and abracadabra, the bread would rise. And to make the whole thing even crazier, it wouldn't even take all that much of the rancid dough. Just an ounce of yeast, I read, is enough to make 20 pounds of dough rise. Surely, surely, somewhere in the heart of every one of these bakers, in all of those generations, if they had even an ounce of poet in their soul, if they had an ounce of curiosity about the world, this daily miracle with this smelly blob of rotten dough would trigger trigger an emotion, would trigger a sensation that we can only call wonder. Wonder. I imagine that the wisest of those bakers over all those generations would even giggle a bit each time they saw that it happened. And they would think, what a crazy world that you can throw some rancid goo into the dough and inexplicably the bread will rise and somehow not poison all of my customers. (laughs) Can you feel that wonder? If you can, that is a good sign because it means you possess a capacity that you're going to need to make sense of this second part of the passage that Jill just read. And I'm talking about verses 22 through 30. It's not the part about the yeast, it's the part about the feast. And unless you have a capacity for wonder, what Jesus says about this feast is going to sound awfully dark and forbidding. It certainly starts in a dark place. And it is this question that this anonymous bystander there in the crowd asks Jesus. 
It's a question about the limits of God's grace penetrating every human heart. It's a question that most of us have pondered in one form or another. It is an enigma that we can't entirely fathom. Why doesn't everybody respond to God? Why doesn't everybody connect to a life-giving relationship with Jesus? Well, I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates Jesus' answer. Whether few or many is none of your business. Put your mind on your life with God. The literal Greek reads, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Either way, it is a Somewhat grim acknowledgement that it is possible to miss this party. And my hunch is that when Jesus says that, he gets the attention of everybody who was there that day. And then, with everybody listening, Jesus adds one more, even more disturbing image. And he presents this image, even worse, not in the third person, not they, but in the second person, you. Many of you, he tells the crowd, who don't find your way through that door to that feast are going to be thoroughly surprised. It will be contrary to everything that you assumed. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? In Luke's next chapter, in chapter 14, Jesus is going to tell one of his familiar parables. It was actually the parable I preached on the first time I stood on this chancel, and it is Jesus' parable of the great banquet. You know, when instead of the posh A-list list of guests, the host sends out his servants into the alleys to bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame... We're going to come back to this amazing parable on January 6th. We're taking a pause to jump back to chapters 1 through 3. Remember, those are the Christmas chapters in Luke. So during Advent, we'll be on 1 through 3. On January 6th, we'll come back to Luke 14 and the Great Banquet. Well, what I find interesting is this is really the same scene, the same imagined scene as the Great Banquet, except it's imagined from the opposite angle. Jesus is telling the same story here from the perspective of someone who assumed that they were on that A-list guest list, and the sudden reversal of this would-be guest's experience is really not all that easy to watch as they bang on that door that they assumed would glide open to them. And as I read this, yes, somewhat unsettling passage, I think it's that word assume that is really the crux of the issue. Because it is to those who assume they belong inside, who assume they have a ticket, to those who assume they're an insider, that Jesus says just about the saddest thing I know of in Luke's entire gospel. You don't know the first thing about me. In all of your assuming, Jesus tells them, you ironically miss the whole point of who I am and why I'm here. Because as long as you assume that my love is your birthright, you will never experience it at all. The only thing 
Jesus warns those listeners, that can ultimately, finally cause those banquet doors to be closed in your face is not loose living. It's not debauchery or dishonesty or wanton iniquity. I can work with all those things, Jesus says. It's when you assume, when you insist that you have a guaranteed right to come inside, that's when I have no way to help you because you don't know me. Another word for this ultimately poisoning mindset against which, which Jesus warns is a sense of entitlement. That I'm entitled to Jesus' approval. That I've earned God's good reward. That I obviously deserve a place among God's redeemed children. It really goes without saying. If this is you, Jesus says, you are going to find that door shut tight. Wow. So, the question is, what is the antidote to entitlement? It is, as some of you have already figured out, it is wonder. An entitled baker would say, Well, of course the dough rises. How obvious, how predictable, how expected. It's only yeast after all. But a baker who is full of wonder, it's that giggling baker that I imagined earlier, finds himself gasping every time he or she peeks into the oven and says, what a miracle. Jesus wants our relationship with him to be like that second baker. Full of sheer wonder, sheer delight, sheer surprise that he chooses me. Amazing love, as that great old Methodist hymn goes. How can it be that thou, my God, has died for me? Well, in this passage, Jesus gives us another and perhaps more biblical word for wonder. And it's in Jesus' description of this imagined would-be priest that is, would-be guest rather, it's in Jesus' description of this imagined guest who is shut out from the banquet, who is out in the cold, who is banging on the door, and who is watching Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets take their seats. What does Jesus see as the real tragedy here? Well, in Eugene Peterson's poignant phrase, here stands A stranger to grace. A stranger to grace. A stranger to the inside-out, upside-down, winsome way of Jesus. A stranger to his unearned and unconditional and unentitled love. And as long as you are a stranger to the grace that is at the very heart of Jesus, this great reversal Jesus talks about, this great reversal that he proclaims as evidence of his kingdom in which the first become last and the last become first, as long as you're a stranger to grace, the great reversal will always sound more like the great indignity, like the great miscarriage of justice. To one entitled, the great reversal can only be seen as a grave threat, as does Jesus' marvelously irresponsible promise to welcome all of the world to this kingdom banquet that he intends to host. Who does that? 
as one or two, one with a sense of entitlement, the stranger or the other or the foreigner is always an interloper, is always a party crasher, is always a trespasser, threatening my place at the table in this zero-sum world. But to be filled with sheer wonder at God's ever-surprising grace, to one filled with that wonder, this streaming multitude that Jesus describes in this short phrase, this streaming multitude from all four diverse corners of God's earth just seems like the logical extension of Jesus' crazy love. If his love includes even me, of course it includes them and them and them and them. And that's why I am just delighted that this one verse, verse 30, ends up being our segue to our Advent sermon series. I just think that's cool. Thank you, God. Starts next week. As I said, we're calling it Christmas Around the World, and it's meant as a celebration of all of the families and the households that God has recently been bringing into the life of our congregation whose story involves immigration from various other lands. And throughout Advent, we are going to be exploring what the birth of the Christ child looks like through their eyes. That's next week. This week, in this passage, in Luke 13... Jesus is preparing our hearts for that discovery. Because as he says in this passage, you can only appreciate what those from north, south, east, and west bring to the kingdom feast if you're first able to appreciate the kingdom yeast. Like that wondrous miracle that makes those fragrant loaves rise, Jesus' love for us is beyond predictability. It's beyond comprehension. And it is surely beyond anything to which we are entitled. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.